0: Welcome to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means Public Square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Tonight on Zocalo, do popular artists have a moral responsibility? Hollywood's husband and wife team, actress Amy Brenneman and director Brad Silberling, assess the state of their industry's effect on society. Then, playwright Jennifer Berry talks with Lee Curran, founder of the Virginia Avenue Project, a free after-school performing arts program providing one-on-one mentoring for kids. Acclaimed actress Amy Brenneman is the creator and star of the former hit TV series, Judging Amy?, Her husband, Brad Silberling, has directed a number of films, including Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. In this kitchen table-style discussion, recorded live at the Kirk Douglas Theater in Culver City as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series, Brenneman and Silberling offer insights about the interplay of morality, creativity, and money in the film industry.
1: It's really great to be here. So, yes, this is something that Brad and I, we think about this a lot, this idea of moral responsibility and working in the industry that we work in. And um, as a jumping-off point, I I have a memory. After the uh, Columbine incident, which affected us, and I'm sure you very deeply, I remember uh, just weeping in front of the television at these high school students and wondering what had happened, uh, what had gone so terribly awry which I guess we're all still thinking about. Um, but I turned to Brad in this uh, pretty involuntary moment, and I just said, well, what do we do? What do we do? And uh, without missing a beat, he said, well, we take responsibility for every single thing we put out there, everything we do. I thought those were pretty good words to live by. And we do, and we do. We think about it a lot uh, in terms of what we choose to do and the offers that come our way and all that kind of stuff. So anyway to a certain extent, this idea of uh, the artist and moral responsibility, when we were talking today, we thought, well, you know, it's really the same discussion, no matter who you are, what you do. It's how much you're going to align what you do for a living, or what you do in the world with your moral center. And obviously, that's not exclusive to artists. That's a decision that we all make, choosing how you make a living, what you put out there, if it aligns or not, with your deepest values. Um... Also, what we were thinking about is uh, this idea of we have to define and decide what morality and moral responsibility means, especially in this current religious climate where people may jump to a certain conclusion um, you know, I always think about that, actually, when I hear the news. Uh, it values, family values, it's like, what are your values? You know, they could be different. You know, this idea that there's an assumption of what family values may be or what morality may be. I mean, obviously, it is entirely subjective. and needs to be defined um, and decided for every individual. Yeah, I that. think
2: ultimately it's interesting. We, You begin to try to break down a, a definition or a concept of morality, and I realize that for me at least in the arts. I actually literally liken, I think, morality to complexity. And what that means is that if you can allow for complexity in storytelling, complexity in characters to illuminate at times difficult and underlying motivations, um, maybe not the most instantly palatable concepts, but give them examination and not simply fall into fairly black and white Choices. I mean, I I just finished a film, ten items or less, which I think I, I set off to do as a complete antidote. The last film I did took about two years to make, and we had a ultimately a great time doing it. And I wanted to go do something that just felt like I was, it was running. So it.
1: much fun. He didn't want to do it again. <laughs> I didn't want to get
2: near it again. <laughs> so I, I, I went off and, and I, I wrote a piece uh, is about choices. Choices artists make. Choices people far from the arts make in Conducting Our Lives, 10 Items or Less is a simple story about two people who meet who are strangers. Um, And Morgan Freeman is playing a fellow who, not unlike my friend Dustin Hoffman when I met him, had put his actual art in escrow when I met him. He hadn't worked in about four years when I asked him to do this part in Moonlight Mile. I was fascinated because he was actually, once I got to know him, I realized he had been depressed. And the reason was because he wasn't working. And the reason he wasn't working was because he'd begun to buy into this idea that, he could only say yes to a picture that was going to be a hit as defined by his agents and his attorneys and his managers. And I I was dumbfounded by that and realized that people have things to say on grand scales and small scales, but that if you're not careful, you can silence yourself. I think that's a sand trap that, that people can fall into very easily, which just made me shudder. You can be working at different scales, but the minute You actually have to think, oh, okay. I'm taking my tools and my intuition and whatever creativity hopefully I have, and I can only occasionally go off and tell stories that I think are about the values that I care about, about human connection. Then I also have to run off into this land of popcorn. I I have a firm belief that both are possible. You can choose to... But
1: it's not the land of popcorn. It's the land of disengaging from what you really give a shit about, you know what I mean?
2: Correct. It's a matter of, can you find yourself in talking about morality? Well, to me, morality is a set of values, a set of beliefs about how human beings can interact, as opposed to having to leave that at the door. Um, you know, in Hollywood parlance, it's make a tent pole movie if you're going to go off and do Mission Impossible 9, or you're going to...
1: But it doesn't matter what it is. It's if you can find your way in, you know?
2: Mm-hmm. This is what our kitchen is like. <laughs> no, but no.
1: Is, isn't, isn't this what we're supposed to be doing here? No, but I just say that because I think even if you're talking about Hollywood, independent, big movie, it's not about any of that, Correct. because you may check out and not believe And I was up in Vancouver doing this movie, and Brad Woodford from West Wing, he was up doing a movie, too, and it was when Pulp Fiction came out. So I ran into him, and we were talking a lot about Tarantino. And he's like, you know, it's good. I mean, the guy's a good filmmaker. And you know what, though? The violence gets so abstracted. I just kind of want to take Tarantino's hand and just, like, slam it in the door and just go, that's what it feels like. And we talked about that, too. It's like, oh, because it's cartoon, there's no consequence. It's strange. And, you know, did I I just totally shut you up, didn't
2: I? I'm listening (laughs) raptly. It's good. (laughs) SAG card, DGA card. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Go ahead. Um,
1: Also, this other idea of complexity, you know, in this era of holy war, this idea of morality as complexity is actually completely opposite from perhaps another view of morality, which is simple, clear, dogmatic, you know, black and white. That as we were talking, we thought, oh, actually our job is to illuminate right and my job i feel like as an actor is to create empathy right so if you give me a role then my job is gonna to see that story from my character's point of view so that you can understand it and maybe go oh god she did these terrible things you know medea Clytemnestra, you know but my job is to give you an idea of why they might do that and um This friend of mine, Carol uh, Barbie, who's a wonderful writer who worked on Judging Amy, went off to do this other show called Close to Home. It's produced by Bruckheimer. She's a great writer. And part of what she does as a writer is what I do as an actor, which is basically supplement what's not on the page, right? So if I get a role that, you know, I'm playing the hero, well, naturally, just out of curiosity, I'm going to think, okay, wait a minute, you know, what's the dark side of this hero? Or if I'm playing the villain, it's like, okay, well, let's open up my heart to that and why, would, you know, just to make it a balanced view. So Carol did that, and she took the heroine and kind of gave her a little, you know, ambiguity and similar to the villain, and Bruckheimer came in. It's like, no, 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 she's all good. He's all bad, period, end of story. And she just had this moment, like, I, I don't know how to tell that story. So that kind of moral moment, is that moral? I don't know.
2: That's the interesting thing. I mean, you mentioned Medea. I, I wonder if Medea would survive... A test screening in, in <laughs> Pasadena today. So, economics always come into play, and the bigger the pot, the more of a need to try to reach the least common denominator. And so, that has fascinating effects. I mean, the last film that was released that I did was Lemony Snicket. For those of you who don't have young ones or you haven't been subjected to the Series of Unfortunate Event books, they're fantastic because they're very subversive. They demand questioning. They um, give respect to intelligence of younger people and at times turn the adults in the pieces to cartoons. But they they draw on the, the real juice of old, um, like sort of the Grimm's fairy tales. So you have some very bad behavior in these pieces. And we were off making a very expensive film version of this And in the world of Lemony Snicket, Jim Carrey is playing a fellow who's a horribly failed theater actor, and he has what's called in the books a terrible theater troupe. So we had these fantastic actors come in to play these people, had our first test screening, and the questions that are posed to a research audience, um, did you like the theater troupe? And thank God most of the responses were, no, they're horrible. Well, that immediately sent the Paramount brass into a panic. We have to take them out of the movie. True, true story. And it's fascinating because you realize, well, then what obstacles do your young heroes and heroines have to overcome? And trust me, if you're interviewing actors who want to come in and maybe play those parts, they need to feel that they're taking on something dimensional. Each of them couldn't get a role in Titanic, so they're going to put on their own play. So they create these really interesting characters, but there's very little room. So you have to fight for that. Again, you have to fight for shading and complexity and... The irony is if those qualities manage to get through interesting questions, um, questions of values, if those manage to get through, I think they're so embraced by audiences. But again, depending on how large the production and how expensive, they'd rather not take that set of risks. And um, so it's a shame, yet not a coincidence, that if you look at that list of Oscar nominees at the end of the year, there are going to be some of these smaller films that somehow allow for ambiguity. and. We were talking about the word moral today, and I'm sure many of you know, but in France, the term is moral rights, and actually moral rights are effectively the creative rights, in this case, of filmmakers, not to have their work colorized if it's black and white, not to have their cuts jumped in on by a distributor. And I'm fascinated by that, because what that means is that the rights that are protected there potentially are for complexity and ambiguity and questioning, and we are in a very bipolar world today, I think, in terms of, of our media. And it, so it, as an artist, well, let's talk about the process. So you're sent a script, and what's your sieve? You know, what is your process of deciding if it's something that you're going to do? Um, you just, Amy just finished a film that she did some work on with Al Pacino called 88 Minutes, which is a thriller. And all I remember is the first time she read it, she threw it across the room. <laughs> so what was that about? Why, why throw the script? <laughs>
1: It's a story of a serial killer, you know, and Pacino is the forensic, you know, whatever. I threw that script across the room because it was bloodthirsty. You know, it does raise the question, like, okay, given the opportunity, can you make human choices within these genres that seem pretty bloodthirsty. You know? And in answer to your question, it's sort of like, okay, even with genre movies where it's like, okay, this is a serial killer, there's rapes, da da da, da. Are they actually interested in telling the story? I mean, the other thing that we talked about today is that network television at 9 o'clock p.m., you know, you can have this incredibly cartoonish, violent thing, but when I was pitching Judging Amy and I said it's going to take place with Juvenile Justice and, you know, have kids that are abused, it's like, that's so sad. <laughs> it's like... Yeah, it is sad because we're actually going to tell the truth. It's not going to be irredeemable, but somehow if it's black and white, it's entertainment. But if you actually tell the story, it's like, okay, we're actually going to tell the story of what happens when somebody gets shot. They cry. They really cry. They're scared. And then it's like, no, no, let's have them shot and then cut to the commercial. You know, we don't actually want to think about it too much. So in 88 Minutes, what happened was the bad guy comes to justice, and the way he comes to justice is he's electrocuted, and Pacino's character is cackling and sort of, like, thumbs-upping and just like, you got to be kidding me. And I kept thinking, I don't know all that well, but I cannot believe this is not going to change. And then I told my agent I read the script, I like, oh, no, no, that's an old draft! That's an old draft! And I got this new draft, and the reason I signed on to it is it got more and more human is it my favorite genre? No, but I know Al is an artist and what I mean by that is he's going to look for the shadings and he's going to make this a real person. And my part, I could completely stand behind what I was specifically asked to do when I thought, okay, I can work with this. You know, I hear this a lot in my little circle. You have to kind of get by with what they're going to pay for it and then try to make a human story out of it. It's like we're getting away with a character drama. People say that, oh, they think it's a thriller, but it's a character drama. That's what I look at as an actor. When I got NYPD Blue, I was um, actually playing St. Joan at Yale Rep. (laughs) And I got NYPD Blue, and uh, the big thing about it was that everybody's going to have to get naked, right? That was the big, like, woo, you're going to get naked. So my theater friends said, like, oh, don't do it, don't do it. It's going to be trashy. And I kept thinking, like, I don't think so. I don't know if it's going to be great, but these guys are nerds. I mean, I don't think it's going to be that trashy. Then there was language I really believe, especially at the beginning of that show, that it was not done for salacious effect. I mean, people sort of got off on, the nobody's ever done this before, but I think it was done in support of these characters who I really liked and I could get behind.
2: The idea of language and nudity was to sort of force a, at times, not attractive human dimension on a group of characters who otherwise are very normally quite black and white.
0: You're listening to actress Amy Brenneman and her husband, director Brad Silberling. This is Zocalo. On Tuesday, August 15th at 7 p.m., Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series and the Los Angeles Times editorial pages invite you to attend Rich Friends, Poor Us. Is Status Anxiety the Newest Form of Depression? A conversation with filmmaker Nicole Holofcener, author-performer Sandra Singh and L.A. Times op-ed columnist Megan Daum. This event at the National Center for the Preservation of Democracy is free, but reservations are required. Visit our website to reserve your seats and to download past radio programs. Go to zocolo.la.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We return now to Amy Brenneman and Brad Silberling.
1: I got to talk to Tony Kushner about the response to Munich and specifically about the scene where the um, the lead guy talks to a Palestinian. I really, really enjoyed the movie, but beyond that, Tony said that the response he got just at the inclusion of that scene really blew him away, that providing that voice was too much for people that he had actually expected if not in agreement with it, but understand that that was part of the full telling of the story. It's fascinating to me, too, just by giving a character a voice or giving a character a different dimension, what that does. And it is interesting, this idea of, you know, having been the lead on a show for a while, it is an interesting trap You have to stay really active to allow even a lead to not be stoic. and Because, because again, it's just more interesting storytelling. Can somebody be heroic if they're confused? I mean, I was fascinated in the 2004 elections how this idea of changing one's mind became not respectable or the idea of contemplation being not heroic or manly. I would actually like a person that was thinking deeply about topics as a leader. I mean, that actually sounds really good to me.
2: I was thinking a lot earlier about choices. I mean, when you think about sort of, you know, do one for you, do one for them, it took about a year at the Directors Guild after Columbine for there to be a formation of what was called the Violence and Social Responsibility Committee, which was fascinating because I I was on that committee with probably at least 10 other pretty prominent filmmakers. And what was so telling was everybody's reactions to their own sense of responsibility. First, the committee uh, trotted in a lot of great sociologists, because, of course, the immediate question, obviously, after Columbine, was what effect, if any, are these images that we put out, these situations, and do we take responsibility? So we had all kinds of incredible sociologists who were brought in at no small expense, all of whom were very quickly just put in in the racks in that room. I was (laughs) shocked by the other directors. It was great, because... Very few people in the room wanted to actually think that there are fairly direct results from these choices that we make in in our storytelling and the pictures that we put out. And at the conclusion of all of this sort of fact-finding, a lot of it was rejected, and the sort of common thread in the room was uh, one filmmaker who will remain nameless said, censorship sucks, man, apropos nothing. (laughs) And when I was too young to, to frankly, have a lot of luxury in making choices, I lost a love when I had a girlfriend who was murdered with a handgun. And I remember this was now back in 1989. And it was just sort of the day before and the day after. And the day after was even at that beginning part of starting my career. It wasn't even about morality. It was just I didn't know how to leave my life at home and divorce it from work. And I think that's kind of what it comes down to for me, which is if your emotional life and how you view the world, how you'd like people to treat one another, doesn't come into play somehow in your work, that's terrific if you can do that. I don't know how to. So I've been offered many a great comic book ride of a a movie, and it's not sitting on a high horse. I was saying this earlier to Amy that I'm without a barometer in those stories. I don't know how to direct them. I wouldn't know how to stage a scene wouldn't know how to begin to direct an actor if I didn't have some sense of myself in there. I had a great mentor in film school. He, pa- he passed away in the early 90s named uh, Martin Ritt, who was a phenomenal humanist. He made movies that were very varied. He made Conrack and Norma Rae. But the best thing he said to me was, if you don't know where you are in your movie, then you and your work are counterfeit. He said, that doesn't mean that what you're doing is is telling whitewashed tales, but you have to know where you stand in order to go and make bold choices. And that can mean the absence of values. That can mean a story about watching values get bled out of a community, a marriage, an individual's life. But you need to know where you are. And it's a question I'm always asking of, uh, at least film directors by nature, rarely ever get to meet, let alone talk. I got very active in the DGA about 10 years ago. That's one of the great things we get to do is we get to all kind of poke each other and see if we bleed. And it's just a fascinating topic. I do see a lot of artists who I think they feel themselves victims. I think they feel that they have no choice in that. You've got to take work where work comes, and it's a
1: perfectly valid point of view. It's the nature of capitalism. Brad met with Juliana Margulies. This was like days after she passed that huge deal. She was offered to stay on ER, and it was something like $27 million over the course of like five years. She was a young single woman. She was sick of being on a TV show. So she passed on it, and people got so mad, so mad at her. And Brad had this meeting.
2: I didn't know. I just walked in and I said, wow, first thing I said to her was good on you. You made a choice. And she just looked at me and she just started weeping. I was like, what? And she said, you have no idea. I have been so harassed over the last few days angrily about that. Who do you
1: think you are? Yeah, who
2: do you think you are? How can you do that? And you are dealing with that, too. You're dealing with everybody's fantasies of what the luxury of that life must be to be able to be on a television program, to go off and direct a film. And and I thought that was just a very strong choice that she made. I don't think she had a problem with the storytelling going on. I think she thought she had other stories to tell and wanted to do that. And also
1: the idea of enough, you know, that she was a young woman. She didn't need $27 million. (laughs) And the idea of, you know, like in any field, it's like to say, I have enough, it's enough, or I'm going to live my life in a way that I don't have to do stuff that I can't get behind. It was funny, we sat down today and Brad said, uh, I don't know if it's moral that Poseidon cost $160 million. Like, I don't know if that's moral and I said what do you mean by that exactly what did you mean by that exactly (laughs) just the economics of it well
2: it's all business and, and the great thing about money is that people can choose to spend money where they wish to I think I was being incredibly hyperbolic but what I was thinking about was for that much money you should have an infinite number of choices in your storytelling and what's interesting about the scope of that price tag and again I lived it on my last movie was how shading and questioning and colors have to get diminished. That's what was interesting to me. And that's what I was saying, I, that there's an interesting moral question, not about the choice to go make the movie or make, hopefully, a hell of a lot of money, but how interesting that, that choices within a work of art get shrunk Potentially, uh, in, you know, sort of reverse proportions to the capital put into the picture.
1: And that, I mean, in fairness to your brethren at the DGA, that's where, as artists, we are, you know, narcissists. And it's like, I I gotta be free. To do my thing, I gotta be free, you know? So it's this interesting combination of hopefully you do a lot of ruminating before you say yes to something. Then once you're actually in the middle of it, The creative process is pretty autonomous. You know, if you have people, and Brad and I have both experienced this, weighing in while you're trying to be spontaneous and saying like, "Mm, I don't know. It's like, wait, 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 let me, let me, okay, you just shut me down. (laughs) You just totally shut me down. So it's this combination of you do need to just say yes to it, and then it's like all of us, you have that thing inside of you, so then you kind of trust, okay, now that I'm on the journey, I can get behind because I said yes to it and did all my thinking before. But that kind of thinking can't happen when you're actually trying to create, if that makes any sense.
0: You're listening to actress Amy Brenneman and her husband, director Brad Silberlain, discussing, do popular artists have a moral responsibility? This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Not turning your brain off for the summer? Neither are we. The Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series has thought-provoking events all summer long, including on August 15th, Rich Friends, Poor Us. Is status anxiety the newest form of depression? A conversation with filmmaker Nicole Holofcener, author-performer Sandra Singh Low, and L.A. Times op-ed columnist Megan Dom For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit our website, ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O. When we return, our kitchen table discussion between husband and wife team, actress Amy Brenneman and Brad Silberlin will continue. Support for KPCC comes from City of Hope Cancer Center, where science is providing answers to cancer, treating all forms of cancer, and offering advanced procedures such as robotic-assisted surgery and tomotherapy radiation, which are minimally invasive and often lead to faster recoveries. For an appointment, you can call 800-826-HOPE or ask your doctor for a referral. City of Hope Cancer Center, science saving lives. The ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach are coming up with a green plan for making their ports so a global leader in the environment. I'm Larry Mantle, inviting you to join me as Air Talk takes to the road to the Port of LA Fire Station on South Harbor Boulevard. We'll be there the afternoon of Wednesday, August 2nd, from 3 to 4 in the afternoon. We invite you to join us to be in our live audience. Air Talk visits the port to talk about its green plan Wednesday, August 2nd. Welcome back to Zocalo a cultural forum for the new L.A. We return now to Do Popular Artists Have a Moral Responsibility? A conversation between actress Amy Brenneman and director and producer Brad Silberling.
2: Have you had instances where, just talking about it on a daily work basis, where within a scene you think are being ducked or shied away from, and what do you do with that with a director? You were talking about your looping yesterday, and that made me think about oh, that's interesting.
1: <laughs> you love this story. Sure. In this movie, there's this moment where Al and this other character come into this apartment, and there's a woman who's been killed, and she's strung up, and it's horrible. Then they have a scene, and then my character comes in. I also see this woman, and then I have a scene with Al. And my scene with Al actually doesn't really have to do with what I'm seeing. I come in to give him some information. So I did the scene, and I come in, and I see this woman, and it's upsetting, and then I say to Al, i got, I got to talk to you. And I sort of, in my acting, referenced this woman, although in the script I didn't say anything directly about her. So it was a bit of a challenge, you know? So I went in yesterday to do some looping, and the director said... Um, you need to talk about this woman because it seems like you're really self-absorbed, that you don't really comment on her. So there's this split second when it's on my back. He wanted me to say, that poor girl, how could she be strung up like that? How could somebody be so hard, like add all this stuff? And I was like, wow, logistically, I don't know if I can get that across, but I did have that moment like, I was right you know not that
2: meaning that these were values that could have been part of the scene as you were shooting yeah
1: it's like wait a minute you know th- that if you see a lady strung up you can't stick to the plot <laughs> you gotta deal with the lady that's strung up and maybe that's a moral moment you know it's not saying like i'm going to save you strung up lady but just that humanity of just going oh! you know it's just that you know it's not even the choices of the script brad was offered this script about thurgood marshall and it's you know obviously like an amazing, amazing story, and the script is pretty good, although it's not great. And we're like, hmm, why is it not great?
2: Yeah, that was a case where if you're going to take a character from history and you want to have your audience realize the degree of creativity and intellect and just bravery of this person is within reach of other people, that's brought to life on screen by not making him a white knight. And the thing I was very thrown by was that from my reading, Uh, biographical reading of Thurgood Marshall, this is is a man who thankfully had a tremendous amount of complexity, confusion in his marriage, a great degree of theatricality and narcissism, and he had all those great, interesting demons that everybody has. They weren't present in a screenplay, and that to me meant that the victory at the end of that story, again, was going to be out of reach of the audience, as opposed to getting to have people step up after the film and be inspired. Um, Here's a character who is infinitely human, still managed to push through all of the quirks of his character with an idea and succeeded. So that to me is like, wow, fantastic. Um, the reverse side of that may be what happened with Phil Hoffman and Capote. There's a character, an actual human being, who maybe got lost after his own sort of blurring of choices of honesty and lack of honesty. But that's what's rich, and that's what makes a compelling, interesting story. I think I didn't love the lack of complexity and the assumption that oh that's just going to be screen time that we can't afford and that's often the case that there's an assumption of oh we can't afford that the assumption that character is not story and that's one of my maybe it's a fault but I think realizing character on screen is story and bringing that out and I think that's what's fascinating to me
1: Yeah, that's sometimes the most exciting high-wire act. It's like you have a script or you're playing something that seems a certain way, and then your trick as an artist is to go, hey, you know what, here's another look at it. And the other thing I want to throw in is that, you know, I did theater for many years with this amazing group called Cornerstone, and we traveled a lot around the country, and it was live theater, so we got to actually see our audiences. And then we often um, had forums like this where we got to talk about the play and see how people were feeling about it and what they thought Well, then you start doing film and television, which is very isolating. You know, it's very isolating. You're off in your little black box. You're doing your thing, and and you're working such long hours that you sort of forget that it's like being beamed away. But when I first started working with Tyne Daly, she was very aware of her audience, and not in a diva-ish way, but she was very aware that she was in dialogue with people who were going to watch the choices she made and what she said. And I remember feeling at first like, oh, that's a drag. Just forget the audience, you know? But then judging it goes on so long <laughs> that I now have that. And not in a way that's going to constrict my choices, but in a way that's very tangible. There's an audience that watches what we do, you know, and there's people enjoy what I do. It's like they're gonna go, Oh, huh, okay, she's doing that. That's interesting. I like it, I don't like it. you know, whatever it is. This whole thing is about telling stories to people. I said that to Brad, and he said, "Yeah, I guarantee you, most of the people in that meeting in the DGA, like, don't fence me in. Forget that. I think, especially for a director, but also for actors, you know, you get off on the ego of it, and oh my God, I have like a sixty million dollars special effect, whatever it is. It's like, okay, cool, but who's the story you're telling? And uh, to, to never forget that.
2: I think we're going to open it up.
1: Would you
3: agree with the statement that the moral obligation for the artist is to create good art? And if we take it and bring it into your arena of movie making, theater, television, is not good art that which is devoid not of sentiment, but of sentimentality? And also, would you not say that the American audiences, or perhaps the whole world, because they're watching you, are primed for sentimentality? And that's why... Mr. Kushner had the problem in Munich where everybody expected, oh my God, he wants us to love the terrorist. Don't you think that in America, especially, everybody here and throughout the entire country should actually understand why?
2: It's an interesting slope between sentiment and sentimentality. Um, there may actually be artists who have sentimentality as a goal. I think often it's an unfortunate result of balance and even the question of good art. My own sense of responsibility is to find courage and bravery in standing by your storytelling, and that is good art. Marty Ritt, my mentor, he was very straightforward. He said, if you have talent that's just dumb block and you were born with it, it's what you do with it. That is the difference between a great artist and somebody who will just be a lucky technician. So to me, results are out of your hands how people will read your work if it's going to be commercially successful. But you think of Van Gogh having no clue about the success of what that work would be later after he passed away, and could he at least feel a degree of honesty and truth when he would finish a piece of work? Could still be tortured, of course, but I think that's the case. When the biggest trap for filmmakers is, if you didn't find love at home, it's needing millions of people to do that. Beyond whatever the cavity is within you that you didn't have filled that's a tremendous trap. I believe in the case of Munich, I don't think we're trying to generate love, but we're actually trying to generate a sense of complexity or understanding. And in the case of the filmmaker, that that too was viewed as somewhat counterfeit because people probably in the past had assumed that if there were sentimental results, that's all he knew. So it was interesting watching somebody trying to stretch and grow. And I remember saying to him, Regardless of the results, if you feel honest about the attempt and you didn't second-guess yourself, which is easy to do, then you're successful.
1: How has being a parent uh, changed your sense of morality, if at all? I had my daughter after the second year of judging Amy, so I'd had two years of playing a mother because my character was a mother. And I won't know every circumstance of what I'm playing, but the dimensionality of, of what that means sort of grew It's not dissimilar to how I felt about the Columbine kids, you know. I wasn't a mom at that time, but I definitely felt more like a mom age spread from those kids than a high schooler. You know, I really felt maternal. So I think it's similar to that. Like, I have to make choices. Um, I can't disengage with my moral center. It's not like I can, you know, make sure things don't happen. I have a daughter and a son, and I think... This probably isn't exactly your question, but, you know, I worked very hard until my daughter was four, and they pulled my show about almost exactly a year ago. I was in agony. Partly what I was doing was wrestling with this idea of what a good mother is, you know, and a good mother is around, and a good mother's regularity, and da-da-da. One of the best moments that I will treasure forever was I was in the makeup chair, and it was probably about 6 a.m., and Charlotte was maybe six or eight months old and I was so torn apart by being away from her and so exhausted that I was silently crying and then my makeup artist would like you know fix my makeup and then I would cry again and I just had my (laughs) eyes and I turned to her with no preamble and I said "Um, Tyne why am I doing this and she turned to me and she said because one day your daughter will work and you are modeling to her how to do something that you love that you care about with dignity and pride Mm -hmm. and I said thank you you know, that wasn't to do with the content of how I was living my life, which I thought was so antithetical to being a mother. I thought, no, man, you get to watch your mama do something she loves. And I hope you love something as much as I love it. And part of what loving that is the choices that I make and talking to your dad about it. And what do you think? Yeah,
2: I think it has been a continual. It was only a reinforcer for me of, again, choices. It is jumping back to the macro conversation of, because we're here and we are parents, and we just past our 10th anniversary of marriage back in September and you begin to build a life. I am forever fascinated by the balance of artists and personal lives and how that intersects. For example, when I made this picture, Moonlight Mile, Jake Gyllenhaal was then uh, probably 20 or 21. He and his sister Maggie have working filmmakers, a father who's a terrific director and a mother who's an accomplished screenwriter. So as a newer father, I was very curious about his perspective of his childhood and growing up, how available were his parents. Um, there's obviously a very selfish quality to art, and depending on what you do it and how you do it, it can be more selfish or not. And I, This is the part that you hate, because I'm always bringing it up. I'm thinking, why is it that those early Rolling Stones records were so <laughs> layered and incredible and thoughtful, and I'm maybe not quite so intrigued by them in the last few years? So I'm always asking, wealth is that comfort, is that when lives grow bigger, than the sort of pure blinders-on commitment to artistic exploration, I see that in filmmakers, I see it in musicians, I see it in writers. I'm fascinated by it, a little horrified by it. Like, wow, do you have to sacrifice a certain acuity in your art as your personal life takes on more time-demanding dimensions? Um, that's just a question I have, and I don't know the answer.
0: You've been listening to actress Amy Brenneman and her husband, director Brad Soberling, recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Join us on August 15th as Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series presents Rich Friends, Poor Us, Is Status Anxiety the Newest Form of Depression? A conversation with filmmaker Nicole Center, author-performer Sandra Singlow, and LA Times op-ed columnist Megan Daum. To reserve seats and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. In a moment, Lee Curran, founder of the Virginia Avenue Project, discusses the free after-school performing arts program providing one-on-one mentoring for kids. Next time on Latino USA, a huge gold mine project in northern Chile has been given the green light by the government, but indigenous locals fear that profits will leave the area and the remaining pollution will wipe them out. That's this week on Latino USA, Sunday evening at 10 on 89.3 KPCC.
4: Do you want some ideas on things to do, where to go, and what to see? Sign up for KPCC's themed monthly arts and culture newsletter. It's delivered to your inbox every month. Visit kpcc.org and click on the newsletter's link to sign up.
0: Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new LA. Up next, playwright Jennifer Berry talks with Lee Curran, founder of the Virginia Avenue Project, a free after school program that uses performing arts to give kids one on one mentoring.
4: I'm Jennifer Berry. Tonight, we're looking at long-term programs making a difference in the lives of children around Los Angeles, small organizations that are having a huge impact. And tonight, I am very pleased to welcome Lee Curran, Artistic Director of the Virginia Avenue Project. Welcome to
3: Zocalo. Oh, well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
4: I was wondering if you could talk about what the Virginia Avenue Project is.
3: Uh, We work with kids between the ages of 6 and 18 who are, in one way or another, at risk. We expose them to long-term one-on-one mentoring using the arts to help them think creatively about what they want to do with their lives, and then we give them the skills to do it.
4: I read also that you started the Virginia Avenue Project because you wanted to also bring programming to young people to actually inspire them, and it's been running for 15 years. And you were talking about the mentorship Can you talk about that particular type of individual intention and how that actually works with the teens and kids that you're working with as far as how to inspire them with the individual intention?
3: Well, for me, the way to inspire kids is to treat them like my equal and not like a kid. For example, when our writers write plays for the kids, they write from their own aesthetic. They write from their own sensibility and from a sensitivity to the child because they also interview the child but it's been my experience that kids will come up to the material and if you dumb it down for them they actually feel insulted and i think that's one of the big problems that we have with communication just in the you know media in general is that everybody's treated as if we kind of don't know anything as if we're all a little dumb and actually i think most people are pretty bright but it's just not celebrated so we make a real point to celebrate the intelligence of our children and also we've found out that For example, if a child is writing a play and they have spelling mistakes or grammatical mistakes, that you don't stand over them and correct them as the creative flow is happening. You let them get it out. And they feel very celebrated for who they are in that moment, not for all the things they're doing wrong, but for all the things they're doing right. That opens their minds up to learning about spelling and learning about all the kind of practical things that they need to learn about. So I guess to answer your question in a nutshell I would say that we basically treat our kids like intelligent equals and who occasionally need to be disciplined. <laughs>
4: Now, can you define at risk for me? Because I think that a lot of times that term is thrown around the kids at risk, the kids at risk. And what does that mean to you? And what does that mean for the kids at the Virginia Avenue Project? Well, we don't,
3: yeah, we don't refer to our kids as at risk to their faces, because I remember kind of not using those exact words, but something else. One time in the very beginning of the project, and one of our older kids got a little insulted and said, you know, I'm not at risk. I don't have a bad life, that kind of thing. But for us, what At risk means is um, anybody who is, say, from a family of the working poor. We've also had kids who are homeless in our program. Uh, Some of our kids may be more middle class, but there's emotional abuse in their home. Um, A lot of our kids are from single-family homes, and there's been desertion by one parent or another, And they have no other way of expressing themselves. Their parents can't afford to pay for acting lessons. And yet they may be very creative kids and they need an outlet. And they're suffering in school because we all know that school in general is not supportive of the creative mind and the way the creative mind learns, which is different than the way uh, kids who are able to memorize or visually kind of imagine things or see words on the page and retain that mentally. I mean, creative kids are much more intuitive.
4: Could you talk about the creative mind, what you see when you observe the children that you work with, how they learn and how they grasp information?
3: I think it's very intuitive. And I think a lot of it is through play and respect and a kind of joyous exploration that we do together as a group. So everybody helps everybody in a way. Uh, and we discover together. I think that's a great part of it. Well, I was a kid who had a creative mind and I was a C student because I couldn't I couldn't handle testing. I couldn't handle the kind of, I guess it's the sort of logic of learning. Um, I learned because I related to something in my gut. And at that time, relate to history particularly well, for example. There were a lot of old dead men that we were having to memorize, and it was just memory work, and that was not electrifying to me. I wanted to know the stories of their lives, and once I experienced that, then I could relate to them. And I think that a lot of our kids are that way in the way in which they approach learning. Although, interestingly enough, a lot of our kids are very good at math. And math now, to me, is a whole other creature from what it was when I was a kid. But it's creative because it asks you very philosophical questions now. It's not just memorize 2 plus 2. You know, I can't even repeat what math questions are, but I know from tutoring some of our kids, they're hugely philosophical, which is kind of impressive. (laughs) I probably would have passed math instead of, you know, almost flunked it.
4: (laughs) Now, you were a working actress in New York and a playwright in New York as well. And you had a a flourishing career. How did you decide and when did you decide to take a different turn with your life and start this project and move back to Los Angeles? You were originally from Southern Uh, California. From
3: Ohio, originally. And
4: um, how did you make that decision to, to, you know, leave the Great White Way and come back to Los Angeles and start this program?
3: Well, I think that I had spent so many years kind of focused on my career and my this and my that and it was getting a little boring and I realized that I was getting older and there was an entire generation or two generations coming up behind me that I really was going to lose touch with if I didn't make an effort to connect and so I started working at the 52nd Street Project in New York with kids and I didn't have kids of my own so um, I knew that being around kids was going to be in some way important to me as an older American. (laughs) It wasn't terribly important to me as a younger American, but nevertheless. And I was really, I started examining what I was doing in New York and why couldn't I do it on the West Coast. And everything that I was doing in New York, I could actually do out here, except for the work I was doing with the 52nd Street Project. And I went, hmm... Okay, I could take this to the West Coast. And I also knew that I was, you know, in my late 40s, and traditionally women stop working, uh, certainly in film, when they hit their late 40s, early 50s. And I knew I was going to hopefully live a fairly long life, and I needed to have some source of income as well. Not that starting a nonprofit is necessarily an intelligent solution to that problem. But, <laughs> but my solutions are, are more intuitive than intelligent, I guess. <laughs> um, so I went to the people that started the 52nd Street Project and I said, you know, I could start this on the West Coast. And this is the difference between an artistic director and an executive director. The artistic director said, great, great, fabulous. And the executive director was standing right beside him and she said, great, when do you want to go? And I said, well, uh, okay, in a month. And, in a month, I left, I packed up my apartment, got in my car, and drove across the country, and came out here and The wind was at my back, really at my back for the first time in my career, starting this project. I had people call me up that you know Lamont Johnson called me up, and he was someone I'd admired for a long time, but I'd never met him and and he has a very, very deep voice when he speaks. Mm-hmm. And I picked up the phone and I said, "Project." And he said, "Hello, this is Lamont Johnson." And I said, "Yeah, and I'm God." You know, like Lamont Johnson would be calling me. And it was Lamont Johnson, <laughs> you know, who had heard from a friend that we, I was starting this program and he wanted to get involved. So it was, you know, stuff like that just kept happening. And I've been extremely blessed with this, with this program. I mean, I'm very lucky because I, I love writing and I love performing, and I've been able to pass on the value that I get from that to young people, not to turn them into actors or writers, but to stimulate them to really think creatively about their lives and who they want to become and how they can figure that out and all those things. And it's great. I mean, I'm, the project is technically 14 years old, but I've been doing it for 15 years since I set the whole thing up. And uh, I can now see kids not only in college, but, you know, going to graduate school to get their master's and It's phenomenal. In fact, almost all of our kids who have graduated from high school are in public service in one way or another, which makes me feel really good.
4: (laughs) Well, it should make you feel
2: very good.
3: You're listening
0: to Lee Curran of the Virginia Avenue Project with Jennifer Berry. On Tuesday, August 15th at 7 p.m., Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series and the Los Angeles Times editorial pages invite you to attend Rich Friends, Poor Us, Is Status Anxiety the Newest Form of Depression? L.A. Times columnist Megan Daum, filmmaker Nicole Center, and author-performer Sandra Singh offer a provocative discussion about social class in Los Angeles and beyond. This event at the National Center for the Preservation of Democracy is free, but reservations are required. Visit our website to reserve your seats and to download past radio programs, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We return now to Lee Curran with Jennifer Berry.
4: Could you talk a little bit about your productions and how they work in the actual process of putting your productions together?
3: Well, we have several different kinds of productions. We have the one-on-one program, which is in the summertime, and we do that in the first weekend in July, and this year we're doing it on the 1st and 2nd of September. Uh, And that's a series of one-act plays that are written by an adult for a child, and then the adult and child perform it together. And we go away to Ojai, we stay at the Oak Grove School in a dormitory and live together for a week, rehearse madly, and swim in the afternoon, rehearse some more, Try to go to sleep and do that for about a week and then come back and perform the plays. Uh, Well, actually, on September 1st and 2nd, we'll be at the 24th Street Theater on 24th and Hoover. And that's the first thing that a kid experiences. And it's a very bonding experience, as you can imagine, because uh, the kids and the adults live together for this incredible week. And then, of course, you're on stage with a kid, and you think that the kid's going to forget their lines, and actually you're so worried about them, you forget (laughs) yours, and they tell you what your lines are. So (laughs) it's always surprising. I I think I really learned how to act on stage with kids, uh, because you have to be so present, Mm -hmm. and they're so present, which is really fun. Um, And then in the winter months, we teach our kids how to write plays, and for that program – Each child studies playwriting for about a 10-class session, and at the end of those 10 classes, each child gets two professional actors and a professional director, and uh, I give everybody a theme, and the kids and the directors go away for a weekend, and on that weekend, the child writes a play for the two actors that they've been paired with around the theme that I've chosen, so... If I choose, say, um, Dreaming It Up, then every play has to have a dream in it of some sort, but they can be any kind of play that the child wants it to be. The director is there with the child as a mentor, not as a co-writer. The director and the child go to rehearsal together, and the child acts as the writer at rehearsal, and if things need to be changed, they can change them. The actors ask the child what they meant if things weren't clear. And if it's clear to the kid and it's not clear to the adult, it stays the way the kid wrote it. That's the point. So you get these incredible transitions that, you know, you just have to leap off the cliff and and enjoy the fall. Absolutely.
4: <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about um, some of the individual lives of the children that attend your program? In the last 14 years that you've been running this program, have you seen a decline in how we treat our children? What types of things do the children come in with? You you were talking earlier about you work with homeless children. You work Mm -hmm. with um, children that you know where one parent is no longer there. What are you seeing? What do you what?
3: Well, a wide spectrum of things. I think that there's a problem among certain kids with parental control, and they kind of kid you know certain kids have figured out kind of how to dominate their single parent and get what they want, which means not having to work too hard or study too hard and play most of the time. And it's hard to get control of those kids because they don't have any parents saying, yes, you are coming to class. Um, But if they get inspired, they'll stay in of their own accord. Um, I think the problem in schools now is that kids are graded on after-school activities as they never were before. So school doesn't end for kids at 2 or 3 in the afternoon. It ends around 6 o'clock at night, and then they've got homework. And so kids, I think, have no downtime. They're so stressed out. And I'm not just talking about kids whose parents are able to afford a lot of activities. I'm also talking about the activities that kids, especially in high school, clubs, they need to be involved in. And that's all looked at by colleges now when they're applying for good colleges. And all that matters somehow. And I think it's really stressful. I also think that kids have way too much information at their disposal. We all do now and so there are some kids who come to class with cell phones and that's a whole thing because they want to play games on their cell phones or you know you have to get them to turn them off or just you know everybody put your cell phone up by me while we're writing that kind of thing we don't tend to have a huge amount of problems with that because our kids have to earn every level of the program that they go through. So they know they know what the guidelines are, and I'm very clear with them. And if I ask a kid to turn off a cell phone and they don't do it, there are consequences to that, which means they wouldn't necessarily get to advance into another program. You know, I'm just using that as a, you know, I wouldn't punish a kid that severely for not turning off a cell phone. But that's the idea, is that they do get something out of showing respect, to their peers as well as their teachers. And um, the other thing that I should say is that our kids start with us when they're six years old, and they stay with us through high school. So we're really in their lives for a long Mm -hmm. time. We work with a small number of kids, but we work deeply with them. And I'm very involved with our kids who've gone on to college. I mean, we go out for coffee, we talk, I help kids find scholarship money, you know, any, any, I write Letters of recommendation for kids. Any way that I can help them get launched, I will. Because I, I don't think it just stops because they've graduated from the program.
4: Is there one particular child? Or I'm sure you've had many that tugs at your heartstrings. That you oh, just. Yeah. That you. Could you talk maybe a little bit about one or two?
3: <laughs> I can't name names. Uh-huh, of course <laughs> it would be not. So unfair. Yeah. Uh, we have a boy who came into the program actually as a freshman in in high school, and uh, in his senior year. He got accepted into Drew University, and right at that time, his parents decided that they were going to move to San Diego. And he was working to get the money together to go to Drew University because this meant so much to him. And uh, he couldn't move to San Diego. He had a job in Santa Monica. So he came and lived with us uh, while he was working and was able to you know, get into Drew and get going there. And we've been able to support him when he comes back home for holidays. If he gets work in this area, then he comes and stays with us while he works so he can continue to go back to Drew. So we've gotten to know him on a personal level, and he's really like a son. He also uh, interned for us last year at the Virginia Avenue Project, and that was all through a wonderful program in the county. Uh, And he was phenomenal. So, you know, you have kids like that. There's a couple of, of girls who started with us originally and... Uh, you know, we've always just gone for coffee and really remained friends and been there for each other. I have definitely made friendships for life with some of my kids, you know. I'm a big believer that once they graduate from the program to kind of cut them loose and let them come back on their own time and in their own way. And some really go far away and then return and others, you know, stay close and, you know, whatever it takes.
4: Um, Since you are a community builder, that your project is, you know, largely around community, can you define your ideal community for kids if you had your way, if somebody gave you a magic wand, what you would do?
3: Well, I think an ideal community for kids would kind of expose them to a microcosm of what society is really so that you would have youth centers that had business programs as well as athletic programs and arts programs. And you'd have members from the community coming in and working with the kids themselves. And you'd also have opportunities for kids to interact with, I think especially the world of politics and the world of business are very separated from the world of kids. And somehow rather when you graduate from high school, definitely from college, You get hit by that. How do I function in this world that I'm supposed to be functioning in that I have no training for? So I think in an ideal community center, you'd have all those elements together so that kids could become also acquainted with what might be of interest to them. And I think also there'd be more downtime and more space. There's always a lack of space, it seems, at community centers, and that's true for us, too. We're always having to scramble for classroom space, and we have a lot of support from our community center which is the Santa Monica Police Activities League, but um, I think more space. So more space, more time, more attention. (laughs) More attention and and more exposure, I think, more exposure. Mm.
4: So if any of our listeners want to contact your program, how can they do that?
3: Uh, Well, you can call our office, 310-264-4224. We have uh, two shows coming up in the summer called Signs of the Times on uh, July 7th and 8th and September 1st and 2nd, so you can call us for more information.
4: It has been my great pleasure having you in the studio tonight. Thank you so much for making a difference in Los Angeles and and the world. My guest has been Lee Curran, Artistic Director of Virginia Avenue Project. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Virginia Avenue Project founder Lee Curran, speaking with playwright Jennifer Berry. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A., Zocalo's radio broadcast is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Special thanks to the Los Angeles Times and the James Irvine Foundation for making this program possible. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit our website, ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. The producer for Zocalo is Peter Stencil. Jade Gao is our engineer. I'm Marcos Fromer. Thanks for listening. Next time on Day to Day, he has written for operas, orchestras, dance, even the Olympics. Now composer Philip Glass is turning his attention to a piece for four.